Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has enhanced and changed someone's life. I'm your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way, as an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is someone who comes to us from Waldorf, Maryland, which is in Southern Maryland and Greater Washington, D.C. He has also lived in Mississippi and Connecticut. He is one Daniel Hill, a.k.a. Yellow Tie Guy. More on that moniker in a second. He is a musician, producer, author, and public speaker, and I admire him for his generosity of time and talents. Daniel is the frontman for his band Yellow Tie Guy and involved with the career of several other bands, including Data Recovery Project, Back to the Beach, and Beta Max. He is the principal founder of Alchemical Records, involved with the nonprofit organization known as the Music and Gaming Festival, which is affiliated with the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Other creative endeavors include the DMV, which stands for DC, Maryland, and Virginia's Music Project, the 5 by 5 Songwriters Showcase, as well as a book titled Three Keys to Success in the Modern Music Industry. What inspires Daniel? Fatherhood, being a contributor to other people's creative projects, promoting others, sharing, and educating. In terms of his favorite sports and activities, he has chosen to share two of his favorite pastimes, which include chasing children and peeling potatoes. Daniel is a big fan of James Spader's The Blacklist and currently watching the program on Netflix. I, too, am a fan of that show and find the character he plays uh, by the name of Raymond Reddington to be both disturbing and enjoyable. We asked Daniel if he has any pet peeves, and he replied with, quote, The inevitable necessity to try to define artwork as anything other than subjective to the observer. For our discussion today, Daniel has selected the Wallflowers' breakthrough sophomore record titled Bringing Down the Horse, which was released on Interscope Records. Bringing Down the Horse was recorded at Sunset Sound in Hollywood, Groove Masters in Santa Monica, O'Henry Sound Studios in Burbank, House of Blues Sunset in West Hollywood, as well as uh, Brooklyn Studios in Brooklyn. A producer of this record is none other than T-Bone Burnett III, and this record was mixed by Tom Lord Algy and mastered by Stephen Marcusen. Let's get to know Daniel Hill, the man known as Yellow Tie Guy, to friends and musicians alike. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. I'm really excited to talk with you. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. All right. Well, uh, let's get settled into our conversation. So uh, what made you choose this particular record by the Wallflowers? I think that as uh, maybe one of the... Uh, mile markers, if you will, for when I started listening to radio-based music and kind of getting away from, uh, I guess, familial influences. Uh, the Wallflowers are a band that I would say that I discovered in my own time. Um, and, and having been inspired by them in being able to make music. That's awesome. 
you know, it's 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 funny. I remember, you know, hearing about the wallflowers for the first time. I was listening to uh, a radio station in South Central Pennsylvania, and that station was primarily known for playing a lot of the cool stuff that people remember from the '60s, '70s, and '80s. But every now and again, they would throw in a couple of bands that were breaking in the '90s, and uh, the wallflowers was right, you know, right there in that canon. You know, they were really. They were really stressing, you know, the quality of the songs, you know, it was, it was, it was more of an afterthought that Jacob Dylan, Bob Dylan's son, you know, happens to be the front man of this particular band. It was about listen to them, you know, the lyrics are there, you know, just really, just really strong songs. And it was, you know, they emphasized at, at how hardworking of a band that they, have have continued to be over the past couple of decades. Absolutely, they still continue to write and record and perform and the music changes and evolves and I think that in some ways maybe as a, a long-time listener that some of their growth are, are maybe stages that I've gone through as a writer as well that at first my attraction is to maybe softer, sadder more melancholy uh, tracks and then realizing that there's room to share in, in some of life's joys and trying to find a way of, of being honest in displaying the, the like positive and negative in just about every walk of life. Sure. Of course. Yeah. I, I, I can completely relate to that. I always, always searching for that type of authenticity, you know, at all costs. Well, I think that that this particular record, although it's not alone in discussing more emotional content, um, like they're they're kind of doing it in more of an upbeat way, whereas I think other artists have done it in in an angrier way. Um, so like, there's a groove and a tempo and a feel, that, so it lets you understand that this is something important to them that they're trying to relate. But it's not necessarily to make you feel sad or, or down as much as it's uh, just a means of yeah. of communication. Yeah, and, and maybe ref- for reflection too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah. Go, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think a lot of the music that was coming out at the time that's that's the antithesis or, or just like the opposite of that is, is the party zone aspect where um, – we're kind of always competing between a world that wants you to forget about life and, and one that wants you to help to better relate and manage to it. So it's a real interesting balance in the world of music and pop culture to, uh, to be able to let you relax and, and forget about things for a while, but then also to help you deal with the, the, the things you will inevitably have to return to when, when real life comes back to, to settle in. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. The, the the trials and tribulations of uh, growing into an adult uh, adulthood, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, just humandom. I yeah. mean, life doesn't really get easier; it just gets different. Um, yeah. Of course, we evolve and grow and and learn and apply lessons that we've learned, but a lot of the struggles continue to be the same: um, family, emotion, health. So, so these are just these repetitious kinds of things that in, are in constant state of flux and, and music is a way of kind of cataloging them, but also a way of reliving them, also a way of 
of dealing with them, a, a way of accentuating them. So music has a lot of, of really unique potentials depending on when you hear a song and how you relate to it in that moment. Absolutely. So we, we discussed a little bit about who the vocalist and lead singer is, who is uh, Jacob Dylan. Uh, can you tell us a little, a little bit uh, to our listeners who some of the additional musicians and, and players are on the record? I know we talked a little bit about this, but you know, uh, Matt Chamberlain, has, he made his way into the fold. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about this um, because Matt Chamberlain is credited on the record as well as a, another drummer uh, named Mario Caleri. And uh, I'm always curious about obvious <laughs> to a listener you're not going to imagine that one person gets up off of the drum set and the other person sits down uh and it's not quite like the almond brothers band like uh the wallflowers didn't have to have two drum sets set up to do any performance that i'm aware That's right of. so uh i think that it's un- unique in music to observe the relationships where you can have more than one drummer credited just because of the ability to influence and on also the ability to share those relationships. So, so Matt Chamberlain left Pearl Jam to join the house band of Saturday night live uh, in the early nineties. And, and he built up a reputation for performing with Johnny winter, Charlie Musselwhite, uh, John Faddis, uh, and, and a number of comedians like, like Steve Martin, Chris Farley and Mike Myers. Uh, and Dana Carvey on, on like musical skits. Golden age. He eventually won a Grammy for best recorded performance, and it was for this album. And the other drummer also received a Grammy for best rock song and best rock performance uh, for one headlight. So there seems to be a lot of information that would that would show that maybe some of these awards overlapped, and also maybe some unique awards that were only given to one one person or the other uh, for their contributions to this record or, or to the songs on the record. And it's just a really a really interesting relationship. Absolutely. Can you describe uh, where you were when you first heard Bringing Down the Horse? I was probably in a car. I, I definitely do my most audio listening in a vehicle and uh, and have always done a lot of road traveling when I was younger. I can tell you that I bought this specific CD at the time uh, at a used music store that was located in Prince Frederick, Maryland. I don't presume that it's still there. Maybe it is. Uh, But uh, I, I bought that specific CD after hearing it on the radio. And I would, I would have to blame HFS or DC 101 or both for being the influence at the time for, for sharing this mm-hmm. music, continuing to drill it into your head. <laughs> yeah. 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 One, one of those things where one, you know, one headlight came out and that I, I think that even at that time I had already listened to enough music that other people were sharing with me where I had an appreciation for an album. So it wasn't, I wasn't the kind of person that was buying a CD for a single I was kind of using the single as an excuse to explore the rest of a record, which I'm not sure, at least in, in today's world, doesn't seem to be as applicable, but, but I would love to be proven wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I, I, bought the, I bought it on CD, and I bought it at the same time that I bought a copy of Braveheart. That was the movie of the summer, I believe, you know, the same, in the same time frame that the record came out. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to do a little more research to verify, you know, the chicken or the egg, but I, I did buy both of those CDs on the same day at the same time. And, uh, I probably still have right. them. <laughs> no, was, I was doing a little digging and I, I had completely forgotten that there were a couple of bonus tracks that were uh, that were featured on Bringing Down the Horse. And one of them was a cover of uh, David Bowie's song, Heroes. And I remember I, I, I right. had completely forgotten just how, how amazing of a rendition that was. It's a great version. Um, it was not on the US release to my knowledge, but it was released as part of the Godzilla soundtrack. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and that would be, yeah, like a fantastic version of the song heroes. Uh, especially if you're an alternative rock junkie, you'll really appreciate the simple instrumentation, but like solid delivery. Absolutely. There was another, uh, bonus track, uh, that was featured a little bit later on, uh, called used to be lucky. And uh, interestingly enough, it happened to be featured uh, as part of a nonprofit organization's compilation disc called uh, A Benefit for Kosovo uh, Refugees. And this was uh, during the Kosovo War of 1998 to 1999. And it's such a gorgeous song. And it's a shame that it wasn't released at the time on Bringing Down the Horse, but nevertheless, as a standalone single and contributing to a good cause it's you know it's nice that we have the opportunity to to be able to hear that track i I personally think it's as strong as anything on the record whether it's three marlenas the difference it's just so good it just it just you know it just grabs you you know grabs those heartstrings and keeps you close as much as uh, one headlight of course being the the hit single from it i was always really attracted to the bleeder you like the bleeder okay nice Nice. Yeah. I'm I'm a three Marlenas kind of guy. I don't know. It, it's it, it the progression of it sort of reminds me of, of uh, the Velvet Underground Sweet Jane. And there's there's just it you know I'll, I'll, I I could I could tell you about three Marlenas in a second. What what do you, what what do you, <laughs> what you know why why does uh why does Bleeder in particular grab you? Um that's a good question. I I guess uh it felt like a more high energy uh song. Uh, but also, again, had a seriousness to it. Um, it was almost like uh, acknowledging a state of being w- without giving oneself over to it. Uh, lyrically, it's uh, it's kind of telling a story. So once upon a time, and, and so there, there's this kind of mythological in- introduction to the to the lyrics, and then the delivery of the chorus, which is, I guess, I should be ashamed, but I forget to in vain. Uh, so I guess it's not, he's not sure if it's something that he should or should not be ashamed about or, or like maybe he's told that he should be, but he forgets that in- he's in- supposed Interesting. To be. <laughs> like he should be learning, you know, perhaps from, from history or, you know, you know, a, a past mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, the beauty again of, of music in artwork is, is lyrically, I think you're doing the best service to a listener if you are able to relate without necessarily being able to pinpoint a specific example or, or like, or saying why the artist did this. Um, I'm always, I'm still to this day cautious about revealing too much about what what's behind a song because I hope that lyrically it can 
be it can convey more than just one thought or absolutely one idea. or even you know go a direction of you can apply it to something that's happening in your everyday existence something that's uh evergreen so i i, I had very briefly brought up three marlenas and i was just thinking about that song as possibly a companion piece to jacob dylan's father bob dylan's song off of blood on the tracks known as tangled up in blue and the reason why i bring that right. up is because some the earliest portion of each of the the first verses bob dylan's goes early you know early one morning the sun is shining i was laying in bed wondering if she changed it all if her hair was still red you go to three marlenas that's right alone alone tonight in somebody's bed she's gone and dyed her hair red is it is it a is it a son replicating something that happened in a previous life of his father or is the woman who is presumably dying her hair red tr- you know you, you see where i'm kind of going with this right now right like is he trying to tell a story on its own or is he trying to tell a story and relating it to an experience his dad had, or is it a direct relationship Exa- to something? Exactly. His dad wrote it's, about? It's, it's, it's really, you, you have no way of detecting as, you know, as long as you are outside of the mind of that, that artist, that creator. But I just, I just find those two to be just, you know, very kind of re- reflexive in some ways of each other. I suppose that the, the imaginative side of me can picture. Bob Dylan and Jacob Dylan having a conversation and, and having this kind of inside reference to, to what it means to both of <laughs> <Yeah>. them <laughs> to, to the degree that when J- Jacob, for example, needing to have a specific way of saying how he was feeling ended up using this euphemism, you know, as a, as a lyric in the song, uh, Maybe just to be able to communicate something very specific to his dad. But that's, again, that's just uh, totally made up and the part of my brain that runs wild when when I try to figure out how yeah, far it, down a rabbit yeah, hole Yeah, in any event, go. it's kind of an interesting <laughs> nod, you know, t- uh, I don't know, 20 years after, you know, that particular single was released. That's right. And uh, I have a, a song now which references... Uh, you know, which references going into a, a cemetery and, and as that relates to something from the original song. And it's the only real reason for me to have mentioned it at all. Um, okay. I won't, I won't go into detail, but uh, I'll, I'll stay, I'll stay mysterious on that for now. But, but, but simply to, to show that, yeah, I think it's a part of history that uh, if we can recognize, maybe, maybe we could find other examples of this in songwriting. Um because it's really the only way of of showing, uh, especially a his, sort of historical Absolutely. perspective. Absolutely, yeah, that's uh, something to ponder, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, another song I wanted to bring up, just you know, is "Invisible City." "Invisible City" just has some really uh, just spectacular imagery, and it's a song, at least I think, has been a little bit overlooked because one headlight was so big. You know, uh, the difference was so big. You know, they just made just instant impact on FM radio. But Invisible City contains, you know, some lyrics. Some of them that have stood out for me is cheaper lovers make expensive wives. Uh, You know, the imitation of good faith is how you stumble upon hate. You know, and then another one that that jumped out out, uh, you know, for me was um, 
I've learned to how excuse me, I have learned how to compromise good people for alibis. Ooh, it's pretty yeah. lyrically intense. But I think that that is uh, again kind of an mo for for the wallflowers. I, I think it would be equal uh, equal to the quality of songwriting, especially the lyricism that was coming out. There were really only the two camps, which are I'm either broody or well, maybe three camps. <laughs> I'm broody, I'm broody, or I'm angry, or I'm like partying. So, you know, I, I feel like. You kind of have to choose: am I am I giving myself over to a, you know some sort of blind enthusiasm, or am I willing to let a song speak to me, move me, motivate me, uh, cause me to to perform better, to ask more of myself? Uh, and, and I think that Invisible City is is asking those things of a listener at the same time that it's therapeutic for the writers in in being able to to share an experience or, or multiple experiences that they, mm-hmm. that they've had over time. Do you have a, do you particularly have a favorite track on this record? We've, we've covered a few, but is there one that just, just really just gets you? Um, I mean, I think that the, aside from the, the impact that, as you mentioned of the singles, you know, that the, uh, the bleeder is the one that mm-hmm. probably stuck with me the most. Um, you've covered a, a lot of, a, a lot of the, uh, I, I would say, more forgotten tracks, unfortunately. I'd have to say that there's really something that I like a, about each of the the minor tracks uh, on the album, but Josephine is probably yeah. the one that stands out let's, that we haven't let's talk about Josephine. Uh, talked about yet. I mean, I, I love the idea of just the line, uh, you're so sweet, you must taste just like sugar and tangerines. Like it's a very yes. specific visual. And, and or, or also just like he's decided that you taste like sugar and tangerines. And it's not just like, oh, you're sweet like sugar. It's like tangerines have this huh. very pivotal role in this description yeah. of this individual. And uh, or, or as something that Jacob finds very appealing, you know, and it's yeah, perhaps favorite food perhaps. groups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, food. Well, like Rufus Wainwright sings a song called Cigarettes and Chocolate Melt. And uh, so I. It's it's an interesting yeah. concept uh, in in cigarettes and chocolate milk. He describes that uh, these are a couple of things that he <laughs> likes that could kill him. One other track that we you know have left off of our conversation for right now is Sixth Avenue Heartache, a- and uh, you know That's one right. thing that you know I had completely forgotten about was the fact that there is a guest vocal on this particular track, and it's Adam Dervitz from Counting Crows. Singing right. backing vocals. They're singing just, backing I was vocals. Like, Where's that extra punch coming from? Oh, that's yeah, that's him. Right. Well, the there was probably some shared uh, resources from uh, like label or, or studio stuff. Um, I, I believe that the Wallflowers consider themselves to be LA based, and so there was probably some overlap in in the studio. Uh, I mean, when you have enough people going to the same places to record, they're there's going to be people running into each other and going, well, what are you guys working on? And what are you working on? And maybe that, yeah, let me, uh, yeah, let me, of, let me come uh, over here. We've got like an hour or something there. like that. <laughs> maybe we can cut a, cut a vocal or two, you know, you never, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a really good point. I never thought about that. Yeah. 
or you run into people at other at other shows and say, "Hey, we're in the studio. If you want to come over and do this, or hey, we just got back from tour. Do you want to pop in on on this?" Uh, there's, a, I imagine that uh, that it would be exciting. I know that it's always exciting to have the opportunity to collaborate with other people and and to join them, especially for something that feels very permanent, sure, uh, like a recording sure. yeah. project. I mean, I think uh, Wiki also also attributes Mike Campbell. Uh, from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers oh, playing right. slide guitar on the track. Yeah, that's oh, that's a that's a gem of a factoid right there. Yeah. So more than one guest. Uh, Have you ever seen the Wallflowers live? So I waited years and years to see them, and I I found that the only time that I could get my schedule <laughs> and theirs to coincide was um, they performed at the end of a nationals atlanta braves game no kidding in national stadium so i got to go see the braves play the nats and i got to see you know the wallflowers uh killer taking over the field afterwards that's that's the perfect evening i mean you can't you can't beat a night of baseball and rock and roll for i think the tickets were only amazing 25 dollars or something yeah we yeah it took us several years too um we saw them at Wolf Trap, you know, just sort of on a whim. This is maybe going back a year or two, so perhaps even, you know, even longer of a wait, you know, for whatever reason. It was one of those groups where, you know, I, I had the privilege of listening to them, but I had to go into work that day. I used to work at an amusement park and, you know, there would just be this like little crease in some Arbor Vita trees where you could listen to some bands and stuff like that. And on that particular tour, I think this might have been this might have been right around the time or six months after bringing down the horse uh, came out on Interscope Records. It was a tour that consisted of Wallflowers, Counting Crows, and I think it was the Gin Blossoms, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's that's a really like that's a power packed bill right there. If you know, if you want to just listen to you know just several good songwriters back to back to back, and and uh, it was really. Right. It was really cool to uh, you know just have a chance to have five minutes or so and and listen to you know them go through Sixth Avenue heartache and and three Marlenas. I was I was just completely losing my mind and just dancing around like a madman. Fortunately, they couldn't they couldn't see me, but I could see them. And yeah, it was it was unfortunately not the right That's day to great. play hooky, but. It was it was certainly worth the wait to see them, you know, literally uh, two decades later. Yeah, it was it was really it was awesome. Very cool. So, you know, we've we've covered a lot of ground here so far, and you know, one question that I would I like to ask is even in the twenty first century, artwork, you know, is always that supporting cornerstone for every newly released single or full length album, and. We live in this universe these days where information and music can be is so quickly accessed in the palm of our hand or with a click of a few buttons. And looking at that album cover, and we can also, you know, we, we, we've covered a lot about liner notes and whatnot and guest performers, but what resonates with you when you look at this particular album cover? That's a really good question. I, I don't think that the album cover specifically... Uh, like puts me into a very artistic mind. Um, like I, I could analyze the cover and the symbolism, but I, I I don't necessarily feel like there's been a great deal of artistic, you know, 
uh, like effort or punch that has gone into to this particular cover. I, I can say that the cover is identifiable to me as it relates to the record. But for me, I, I've always been more about the music for the Wallflowers. And in later later album covers don't necessarily approve or, or like disapprove my, right, my, right, my opportunity right. of purchasing their music. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very nondescript. It almost feels like, you know, they just, they, they took a still photograph of what was happening in the one headlight music video where they had, a, you know, the stars of the American flag, you know, draped out there or draped in the background of the band. And they kind of, you know, they, they kind of like repurpose that idea. Maybe that's the importance. Uh, the symbolism was more from the, the marketing, especially in yeah. the MTV generation to, to, to be able to see the music video and then go to the store and to recognize something from the music video. Uh, like maybe it was more iconic in, in those kinds of experiences. Um, for, for me, it was just a matter of I, I liked the record or I liked the music and then I bought the record and, and I have this. It's not quite the same, you know, as people who are putting a lot of thought into the, the art and hiding things sure. from people or, or Easter eggs, as, as they're called, which I'm a big fan of. I think I've got one more question that we could discuss here. And, you know, you know, to be honest, I, I'm going to have to, you know, claim claim ignorance with this question. And that is, you know, so, so this particular album fits, you know, into their discography by being their second record was bringing down the horse. If, if you know, uh, was it more of a continuum of what they were working on with their first record or was it a complete departure? Because I've never, I don't think I've ever really heard the wallflowers debut album. We were so uh, clobbered over the head with all this great music off of the second record. Does it, is it out of print? Does it exist? Uh, was it a series of demos? I, I, I truthfully don't know. Do you, is there, do you have any, any idea? Do we need to, to conduct a search party to find, you know, some earlier music to compare it to? I, I honestly really love their first record. It is a self-titled record. That is a, as far as album art goes, is <laughs> a picture of their feet <laughs> Uh, and there's a, a dog in the picture, but there are, there are so many tracks that I actually really, I really enjoy from their self-titled record. There's a, a lot of, I, I think it was more actually a focus on uh, getting songs out there as opposed to there's a cohesiveness to the sound that occurs okay. on the record featuring one headlight. So, so bringing down the horse has, uh, right. bring, bringing down the right. horse has a, a cohesive sound. Uh, whereas, the Wallflower self-titled album uh, is really Are there really any more of a tracks that songs. you are aware of on their debut album that potentially got re-recorded for bringing down the horse? I know some bands are not necessarily satisfied with the first go no. around of a song, and they go back into the studio, try it again, and they make little tweaks, like maybe they've altered the chorus or added a, a, an extra, you know, couple measures to a bridge. Is, does that exist in this particular record or not? I honestly couldn't say with certainty. I, I, I feel like from a sound perspective, it would, be, it would make more sense to me to think that the songs on Bringing Down the Horse were written all at once, like with, within the same kind of, of, of setting. 
whereas the the wallflower self-titled was more of just like uh playing catch up to maybe some songs that that jacob had written and you know now is kind of playing with the group so maybe maybe this uh self-titled album is a bit more of like a public demo (laughs) and then by the time that they get through the first record they're able to get the attention of you know, a producer who's able to help them create more, more of a cohesive sound as, as they are working on releasing new material. And the first record uh, was on, on Virgin as opposed to Interscope. So maybe only had the one, the one recording uh, under contract with Virgin before being moved over to Interscope. Well, we've covered a lot of ground for all of you listeners out there. uh, If you, if you haven't heard the wallflowers, I think it's safe to say that both of us would highly recommend bringing down the horse, their their sophomore effort. Daniel, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so very much for making the time, coming on the program and, you know, sharing, you know, this particular record that resonates with you in such a deeply profound way. Thank you, Matt. All right. Thanks so much to Daniel Hill for being on with us today to talk about the Wallflowers' sophomore effort bringing down the horse. For all of you listeners out there, thank you. And please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other place you may listen to podcasts. Take a moment to tell friends or family about our show. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.